Where are you from? You're from Louisiana somewhere, right? Yeah. I grew up in Karen Crow until I was seven. And then I lived in Lafayette till I was 19, and then I moved here. Okay. And uh, I remember, because I, I had met you in Lafayette, you were playing out there. I think we did some yeah. shows. There was a yeah. funny band. I had this band there. called, yeah, the Asparagus All-Stars. Right. That was, like, one of my first bands there, like, early on when I, when I tried to study music in college. And I, but I wasn't, it just wasn't for me. But I ended up hanging out at the music school all the time and starting bands with the musicians there. So you were and you were playing what instrument then? I started off playing bongos when I was like sixteen. Okay. Uh, I tried a bunch of other instruments and it just it did, didn't work out. I tried to play guitar when I was young, and uh, I was like too young to understand that it wasn't like a video game. You just pick it up and you sound fantastic. I thought uh. you could just thought it was all in the guitar, you know. Uh. Um, I, I wanted to play organ for a while, which I do now, but at the time I just, uh, I didn't really get it going. And I attempted harmonica at one point, uh, and I was like kind of derailed by an illness, uh, in my early mid-teens. And then, uh, after that I kind of had a lifestyle change and ended up deciding that I really wanted to play music. And I ended up started, starting playing bongos with this friend of mine from high school who played kazoo uh -huh. we were freshmen and the whole concept was to start a bongo and kazoo band and just play Yellow Submarine over and over again Yellow Submarine <laughs> over and over again that was the, uh, that was the deal okay interesting and then uh, and that's how my musical career started so let me, let me ask a question what was your response what, what was it about the music school so you tried to go to music school in Lafayette yeah yeah I tried but I, I don't think I just don't think I was prepared for it I didn't have any sort of background other than like I had taken some drum lessons with people and I had some rhythmic notation down mm -hmm. but like just being like thrown right into ear training and uh, theory and like uh, these piano classes when I, I didn't even know uh, you know the clefs you know I didn't I was totally unfamiliar with a lot of the actual basics you know so so what uh, what, what drove you to the, the bongos and the percussion you know, like, I don't even, I can't even say specifically what it was. Like, I, I saw the instrument, and I was just intrigued by it. Uh -huh. And I, like, saved up my money, and I bought them. And I just would, like, play until my hands got swollen. And, like, I don't know, like, I started taking lessons with this guy. I got some videos, and this guy's name was Todd Hall. He was, uh, he was a great drummer. He lived in Lafayette for a while. And he was really inspiring, and he, he, he saw me improving, and he gave me some encouragement. And once I, like, got past... Once I got to a point where I knew something, I was just like off, you know. Uh -huh. I was ready to go. I just I had that little taste of uh, advancement, and that that's like I, you know, everybody craves that. And yeah, what kind of uh, it, when you were in Lafayette, were there other musicians that you were inspired by that you'd seen when you were younger, or was there any kind of live thing there? Or um, when I was younger, I used to see flyers for the iguanas all the time. Whenever Grant Street was like blowing up, oh, I remember oh, that. And I later, uh -huh. you know, later played with them was cool but I never actually heard them uh, then like my my parents have always like listened to a lot of uh, a lot of music that influenced me like whenever all my friends were listening to like Nine Inch Nails and like White Zombie and all these bands I was listening to the Velvet Underground and you know uh -huh. like the Beatles Grateful Dead stuff my dad used to have that live Velvet Underground record with the big ass on the yeah. front you know I was listening to that since I was like a little kid so I was always like intrigued with like the '60s and '70s stuff, uh -huh. you know, from 
since I was like really young. Frank Zappa, Overnight Sensation, I like, they were playing that record when I was like six, you know, I've always been around that kind of music. It's so, so uh, but yeah, there, there were like other musicians, like people that I met in the music schools. There's that guy, Chris French, Chad Viator, Brian Nelson, uh, Tim McFadder, uh, who plays in my band now or intermittently at this point. Uh, uh, those guys were all <clears throat> really cool. They just, I, I think I, I started playing gigs before I was necessarily ready to play gigs, uh -huh. whatever that means. I was always kind of fearless and then I was like, I'm just going to have to make mistakes in public to get better. So uh -huh. I just kind of, I just kind of jumped up there. How did it make you feel when you were making mistakes? Um, it was hard. I was like, I, 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 early on, I was, I don't know if I was driven by fear, but like, I really wanted to succeed. You know, I mean, I just stopped hanging out with my friends. I was just like, I have to practice. So it was impacting your social life. For oh yeah, definitely. How about, do you think, do you think the music you were listening to was impacting your social life? Yeah, definitely. I uh -huh. definitely, I got, I got re like, I, I tend to like go really into like one thing and uh -huh. like explore it in depth. Like people with these huge catalogs, like, uh -huh. I've always been, because uh, my, my, my musical taste, I listen to a lot of pop music of various kinds, uh -huh. basically. I've never listened to a lot of classical. I mean, I, lo I, li I love jazz and I love like blues stuff and all of that. I listen to that stuff quite a bit. Uh, I like roots music, too, but it's always been like these personalities, like, like eclectic people that I've always been interested in, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, I don't know, just characters. I've always been interested in, like, not only in their music, but in their their particular situation in time and their lifestyle and their, uh -huh. you know, that stuff's always really intrigued me. So, and of those, let's see, at the beginning there, you mentioned these things, uh, Velvet Underground and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Frank Zappa and things like this. Uh, what, what do you think, you, what is it you saw in there? Is it, is it that? Was it that they had these odd personalities or... Uh, or I think I, I, like, I seek authenticity. Okay, this is very uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah, I seek authentic people. Uh, I don't know, realness. I like people with large bodies of work, uh, prolific people. Can you explain a little bit about what represents authenticity, or or to, to, to people, or like what is what is authenticity, and what it, what's its representation? Like in other words, like they're representing that. To yeah. What? Uh, well, to me, like when I mean somebody that's making their own statement, you know, mm -hmm. doing doing what they doing their thing, you know. I like strong personalities uh -huh. in music. Uh -huh. And so. When you were, let's see, when did you move to New Orleans then? Uh, in uh, January 1st, 2002. But I was uh, hanging out in the city f from about 2000 on, taking lessons with Hector Gallardo. With Hector, yeah. And I still, I swear to God, he did not know that I lived in Lafayette. He would invite me to come and sit in and stuff, and he didn't know that I was driving two hours and then driving back. Yeah. You know? But the first time I ever uh, <clears throat> sat in on a show in New Orleans... The band was, uh, it was at Cafe Brazil. It was Hector, myself, Matt Rohde on violin, Rick Trollson on trombone, uh, Sam Price on bass, Steve Masikowski on guitar, <laughs> and uh, Brent Rose on sax. <laughs> that was my first introduction to. <laughs> I've never been involved in a new world of free for all. <laughs> was like, and it was like the Cuban stuff, it was Hector's stuff. So he right. got me up there and we, we did some stuff we'd been working on in the lessons, you know, and I just kind of. 
got up there and played what I had learned, and it was really cool. Wow. I was like, wow, this can work. It's going to work out. Um, now, Hector, so, so let me see here. Did you move to... Why, why did you move to New Orleans? Um, because I, f- I felt like the music scene in Lafayette was like ultimately... I, I didn't, ultimately never going to... Uh, I don't want to knock the, the scene there, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. It's not very broad. So uh-huh. It feels like there's a ceiling, you know? Yeah. And it's like... Uh, I'll say there's almost like a talent show vibe to a lot of the, the scene there. It's like a college town, you know? Yeah. So a lot of my friends have great bands, there, uh-huh. you know. But it, I just uh, there's a certain paradox in the fact that you were you felt like you, you already felt deep limitation, like you couldn't really play your instrument and the difficulties of that, and yet you were feeling a, a, a very low ceiling on Lafayette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I had I have big ideas. Okay. I have big ideas. That's another reason I, I've always liked electronic music. You uh-huh. know? Like. Uh, I started messing around with drum machines right about the same time I started messing around with uh, with uh, percussion because I was essentially at first going to use it as a practice tool, like some uh-huh. sort of click track to practice to, uh-huh. and then I just started going insane and like because I have a pretty vivid imagination. And I was I realized that I could I could with a drum machine or a sampler I could imagine far more and actually execute it in that medium than I could uh, otherwise. So it's like. And I grew up playing video games and all that type of stuff, so to me it was almost like the same thing. Just put on the headphones and start just imagining stuff and uh-huh. and uh, it all down. So it, there was a resemblance to video games. So oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I've always I've always thought about it like that. Uh-huh. I think a lot of people that are my age do. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. It yeah. Definitely, because I'm a little older, I definitely never think well, of it as a video now game. Now it's <laughs> even more because you've got like rock band. You know, totally. Doug Garrison told me that he was giving this kid lessons that. Just like he was sitting around playing rock band on drums with his friends, and he was really good. And they're like, "You could actually play drums." And he started taking lessons, and he was like way more advanced than a normal beginner. Yeah, that's right. It's like a vetting system for really for real musicians. Unbelievable. Uh, (laughs) It's strange. Yeah, it's a very strange world. I mean, I just think you know, there's that funny thing now with the fact I was reading that uh, that uh, uh, Paul McCartney has decided to go back and record. a bunch of Beatles stuff with one of the engineers from back then, but using the Abbey Road emul- emulators, like, oh. like <laughs> <laughs> the emulators. Yeah, you know, like they have that, like drums from the yeah, Abbey yeah. Road drums yeah, and yeah. all that stuff, and this is you know the three verbs and whatever that I'm like, that's so Paul. weird, man. That's Paul. like Paul the other. But it's sad, but it's but at the same time, you're like, it's not far off of this, like right. you know, <laughs> like, right? It's yeah. like some kind of reverse. Yeah, Paul. I, what happened? Recent experiences in making, uh, I don't know. yeah, whatever. Yeah. What are we? What are we going to say about a beetle? So, yeah. uh, so the next thing is, um, okay. So you moved here. Now, look, you were studying with Hector Gallardo. Uh-huh. So at this point, did you, the kind of direction? Well, this is a very strong character, but that's probably not the kind you're talking about. But what? Uh, what? Tell me about this lessons with Hector. Then. The lessons with Hector were very. Uh, they were like it was a it was an interesting time in my life because I was I I started off being like uh, far more like wild and creative with my ideas and not well I started off doing a lot of improvisation being uh-huh. just interested in like jamming with people for hours and then I was listening to like a lot of like out Coltrane and stuff like that and you know wanted to play like 
free jazz and do stuff like that. And uh, and I met Hector, and he intru- he basically introduced me to this world of literature on the instrument, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, he, you have like countless books that you can find with all the different rhythms, like basic rhythms, plotted mm-hmm. out for you. And there's all this common information that anybody can get. But he had actually cataloged a series of phrases that people play like in between you know there's like like the vocabulary of actually like soloing he, he broke that down into a very specific system of phrases in cuban music he, and it was all cataloged in his head and he, he he would just sit there and like play them and i had i had them all on tape i mean i've got them mostly memorized now but uh that was pretty astounding to me how he was able to listen to like 30 years worth of music from the from the 50s up until then and just or 40 years and just like you see similarities in the way these guys play on every single record uh-huh. there's like a language that they're speaking is uh-huh. what I'm saying you know and he had had he had all, all of the nouns and verbs and everything broken down wow that was amazing so for a while I went into this very strict thing where I was like only listening to Kachow and like uh-huh. transcribing Tatooine's parts and just uh-huh. like trying to be I was like little Hector for a little while I was playing with him on the street all the time yeah uh, before before Katrina outside of Cafe Brazil for a few years we'd go out there almost every night we'd even go out to Canal Street and I, remember, I remember nobody was busking back then no I know I used to play with him on the street yeah too, exactly back, way back then yeah, absolutely in the back bar at Brazil and uh, yeah that was very intense because he, he had a lot of up non-musical information to give you know sure yeah yeah no, and his uh Kind of take some and leave the rest with Hector. Yeah, pretty much. It's right. It's it's it's, it's economy. You have to you have to do that. But but he doesn't have a lot of information. I mean, it's funny because there's, there's always a period where people are there's always an acolyte, and you know, yeah. like, they're going through the <laughs> through the ring or whatever that is with, with 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 Hector. So that's interesting. So then and and so somehow though you manage to find your way into. Uh, getting out of that what you wanted but still there was this these big ideas right that you had to go right. on well I I like started hanging out with Jimbo about a year into being here Jimbo how Walsh. did you meet him I met him um, I had kind of seen him hanging around outside of the Blue Nile and I just kind of seen him around and I was aware that he was a musician but I didn't know anything about him because uh, there's a lot of musicians you know yeah but then uh, I guess it was a Naked Orchestra show at the Blue Nile mm-hmm. uh, when they still had the grand piano like backstage. I guess they were, or they, I guess they moved it for the show. Mm-hmm. But he was sitting in the back just playing piano, and I had heard by this point that he was a doctor of music. So I went up and I started asking him about Frank Zappa because I was listening to a lot of Frank, and he's like, "Yeah, that stuff's cool, but you got to check out Captain Beefheart." And I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." And I had listened to a little Beefheart, but I went out and got all this stuff. And I bought this, like, Beefheart bootleg from New Jersey in, like, 1976. That was really good. And I went back to, uh, I, don't, I think it was a solo show he was playing a couple weeks later there. And I brought it to him. I was like, oh, I got this bootleg. Check it out. And he was, like, at that show when he was my age. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, like, kind of a serendipitous moment. At this time, I had started The Planets with Tim McFadder and Jeff Bear, And we had kind of done some Zappa transcriptions and stuff and I told him about it and we were doing this band with odd time signatures and I had these like players 
and he was like, I'll join the band. He just joined the band right on the spot. Mm-hmm. And we rehearsed at his house every Sunday for the next eight weeks. And mm-hmm. then we started playing shows. Cool. And so you had, uh, when you went to these two guys, were you, you, this was your, were you the, you were the ideas behind it? I was the ideas behind behind it, it. yeah. And so, and uh, how did they see what you were up to? Uh, Well, Jeff and I uh, are friends because we played in our first jazz combo together in Lafayette. Okay. Uh, He's on, him on drum set and me on percussion. Uh And uh, Tim was in that band, the Asparagus Uh All-Stars. And he and I wanted to do something more artistic than that band because that was just like kind of a kind of a straight funk jam band kind of a thing. You mm-hmm. know? So we wanted to do something more interesting. So uh, at first, I kind of started taking a lot of the knowledge I got from Hector, how we would like drop on a dime and go back and forth between all these Cuban rhythms to to do like demonstrations on the street. Mm-hmm. So I started writing my own breaks for percussion and drums and. Uh, started coming up with these elaborate drum forms that would people would solo over spontaneously different instruments mm-hmm. and then uh, we kind of did a few Zappa transcriptions and then we started gathering tunes and we were kind of like kind of an out jazz ensemble at first and uh, at some point we just transformed into a rock band you know uh-huh. uh huh what was how did it um, what's, what, explain that transition like uh, more drug use <laughs> um uh um, possibly more drinking, just more of a like New Orleans lifestyle. Like I, I started to get really uh, angry because the better I felt I got at playing Latin music, and the more gigs I had, the more I felt like people thought that's what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be, right. and that's all I was ever going to be. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't even, I don't even really like it that much to tell you the truth. You know, uh-huh. I, I enjoy it as much as anything, but I mean. I don't like showing up to a gig just because I know I can play and like getting vibed by some like Puerto Rican guy who thinks I'm trying to outdo him or something. Uh-huh, you know, I'm just uh-huh. trying to play the drums uh-huh. on time, <laughs> make a couple of bucks. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, just listening to like more and more music and realizing that that music that I liked was uh, within my reach of making. You know, uh-huh. so I started off. Uh, I had this doctor sample <clears throat> and I started doing sort of like sound collage stuff on top of the band, mm-hmm. like Woody Allen clips, Noam Chomsky clips, just like uh, noise things that I was making with the effects on the box and on my computer. And then eventually I found myself saying, well, I want to like, well, what key is this in? I want to, I want to hit a high note on this part. So I would, I was sampling uh, these little crappy keyboards and then I was eventually like, well, why don't I just play keyboards so I just started banging it out and it was really painful at first I sort of remember you up there all of a sudden thinking what's he doing now like now, the, just the fact you would like something and you got these little I had the little micro keyboard and I was like that's pretty freaky because I mean I you know I think I I'm trying to remember what point I really started seeing other planets because I know it was it had to have been the you know when Jimbo and Dan were both in there and yeah and that, yeah. that period and I was like what the doing but except that i used to talk to you guys on the street so i think it was post katrina because like the band okay actually dan joining the band Uh really had a a a big effect why i'll tell you what happened um it's coming back to me now zach smith was there Uh, zach smith can attest to this he actually had a lot to do with the shaping of that band because really yeah oddly enough because zach smith's a photographer yeah and drummer for rotary dance 
Oddly enough, uh, <laughs> and from Lafayette, and from Lafayette, <laughs> I've, known him, I've known him since 1999. Um, we had made our first record right before the hurricane, and uh, it was uh, mostly made by me and Jimbo. With uh, Quinn Kirchner was on some of it. A few other people were on it. Matt McClyman, Dan was on it a little bit. This and that. Uh, it was a very experimental record, but like. Jimbo and I did a lot of hanging out and conceptualizing. We were putting lyrics on there, and it's like learning how to s like sing for the first time and overcome that fear. And we just we it was a it was a pretty cool record. It was essentially a punk record with a lot of different well, sounds. When you say just let me pause a second, I want I really want to get this story. But what kind of conceptualizing? Like what direction are we going to go in? Like when we decided we were going to do a recording, we decided it was not it was not going to be a live documentation of the band. Mm -hmm. We were going to make a studio album. Uh -huh. So uh, conceptualizing, like okay, so we had never done that. So we had I had a bunch of tunes that I had written on my sampler, mm -hmm. with these little keyboard samples, and uh, we would like put the entire sequence on there, then lay a whole drum track and lay the whole band on top of that, then maybe some more electronics, and then a bunch of percussion overdubs. So we just had these this huge thick sound, and then we'd sing through a megaphone on top of it, and you know we were just just going crazy, just being really creative. And mm -hmm. We came up with something that we were really happy with. But that's kind of whenever the concept for the band solidified for us, like, yeah, we're going to make music that we like, and it's going to be really off the wall, mm -hmm. and we're going to say fuck a lot if we want to, and we're going to just like do whatever the fuck we want, basically, mm -hmm. make great records for us. So so now let's get back let's get back the on story. track with, yeah. with, 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 with so Zach and so, then so Dan. And Dan was in the band. Uh, me, Dan, and Quinn were like hanging out a lot with Jimbo. Quinn's our drummer, and uh, uh, we were just really into the Beefheart thing and just this, like kind of like crazy energy and surrealism and just like just kind of sitting around saying bizarre things. That was going to be part of our whole concept, you know. Like we we're planning all these things, and then the hurricane happened. Quinn and Dan and Jimbo uh, and uh, several other people. We all. Uh, went to Lafayette, we were staying with my parents, and then we were staying at Jimbo's house in Henderson that he ended up buying. Uh, we played a show out there. Um, we played a couple of shows that were really, like, just emotional with Quinn, and I think Ray Moore was there sitting in, the sax player. And uh, There was one show in particular, after Quinn left, Simon Lott was filling in on drums. It was at this place, Cafe Cottage, and Zach Smith was there. And it was just something about the energy of that night. Like, we we were doing our normal thing, but he was, like, feeding us this energy. Uh, he was just kind of, like, getting in Dan's face and, like, pointing at him, a lot of screaming and getting the, the crowd really hyped up, too. Like, just... And uh, it was something about the audience that night. And Zach was definitely the catalyst. That's whenever Dan... The first time that Dan became the crazy character that he was for like a couple of years in there <laughs> yeah. that that was the night where well, he, he was comrade Dan. yeah i mean people we we didn't play in lafayette for like another year after that like, people really? didn't want to come see us because we were so just it was a benefit for the red cross we brought our own jameson and our own uh ice chest full of beer and was like dan was pounding himself in the face with the microphone till his lip was bleeding he was on the ground screaming about how people in Lafayette didn't care. Like, like it was like it was like second teething or second it was. adolescence. It was. Or something like it that. became like the scream thing, and then 
Yeah, he just he became a screamer. <laughs> and he would just play these like fire breathing solos on the berry and, and on the bass sax and then just scream at the top of his lungs and smash shit. And I remember one time, uh, our, 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 the guy who plays drums for us uh, now, Paul Thibodeau, was telling me a story about how the first time he ever met Dan, he got a really bad impression of him because he, he was doing his thing, going nuts. And he went up to Quinn's drum set and just grabbed a cymbal and threw it on the floor. And it was like a K. It was like a really old jazz cymbal. And he fucking cracked it. Yeah, I mean, I remember, <laughs> just his, I remember these gigs when you were up at yeah, the dragon bed. Yeah. And he was like throwing... He was throwing shit. <laughs> he was throwing the cymbals down and screaming. I saw him chase a guy. This the, He was playing a show with Rambus. Mm-hmm. It was him and Jay Steigner and... Uh, someone else might have been on they had guest spots Mm -hmm. and uh this guy hung out he's the only guy in the room besides like me and a couple of other people he hung out for like uh half an hour and he was talking about how much he loved the band and stuff like in between songs loved it and then was walking out he didn't he didn't leave a tip which it's it's not a restaurant you don't have to tip the band you know and uh god knows they weren't playing conventional music uh-huh. in any way shape or form and Dan wasn't satisfied with the mere compliment <laughs> that the guy had given him so he started screaming tip the band tip the band and he followed him down the stairs like putting his like putting his sacks in, in the, the guy's, guy's face oh. in his face and blowing notes at him and then saying tip the band tip the fucking band blowing notes at him and uh, I just like couldn't believe it. I don't think you would catch Dan doing anything like that nowadays. Well, no, but you know, I was thinking actually, as you're saying that, maybe the reason that you know he's in such good shape, really, in terms he of let like, it being all out. <laughs> and he also is very conscious of he can really delineate limits and gray areas. Yeah, if you've been there, you're like, you've got the knowledge of why not to do this again. And you know what? <laughs> Different yeah. people might do under certain circumstances. Right. It might give you an edge now that, right. now that I'm hearing this. Like, um, so, uh, so just hold on. We're still not at the end of that that particular story. Because then I'm, I know you got to go. We'll get back to we'll get back into things a, a, a later later time. But I do want you to finish the, the story. So okay, so Dan gets involved. Zach Smith somehow puts this together because this is post Katrina type. This stuff. is post Katrina. There's this, this highly emotional drunken show uh-huh. where we all just we we just went we we all went went there to that that level that I'm describing. Uh-huh. Dan, like we all got to this other like point of like freedom and bombacity and we were just like this is what we're doing now uh-huh. this is it but at the same time I, I, I uh, it took me a minute after, after Dan left the band I, 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 I had to step up because I was I was still fronting the band but I had this like little machine little like little we'll machine that I could turn band. on mm-hmm. uh, well no he and I were not getting along very well for a little while because of we we were roommates before Katrina, and then he evacuated my parents' house, and we were just it was like high tensions. We were very close quarters for about a year and a half or something. I, don't know. I sort of remember that because I remember that you guys were talking about recording all the time, and I and I remember thinking it was exhausting listening to explain what you were doing. Oh yeah, we were, like, we just started recording all the time, all the time. Right. Uh, it was it was beautiful. And he's a big electronic music head. He is. Yeah. Yeah. But what happened really was was that he uh, he got the trombone shorty gig. Okay. And uh, but, but he, he, he kind of lost interest with the, no with the band. Gig, and then the Nojo gig too. Right. He kind of lost interest with the planets. He uh, likes to move around. Yeah. We I remember I remember exactly when it happened. We because we did our second record 
he had free reign, he had total freedom to do whatever the hell he wanted. The third record, we had some tunes that had some horn arrangements on them that I maybe he maybe he wasn't interested in playing. Maybe he just wasn't into it, the simplicity of it or something at that time mm -hmm. in his life. Uh, some some parts that he just I mean, he just never seemed interested in learning. We'd go do the shows and. Tim ended up just playing all the horn parts on keys with both hands, you know, and mm -hmm. Dan would play the occasional solo and just kind of chill out in a chair and we'd do the show and he, uh -huh. he became less and less involved till he just stopped showing up Then he got another gig and uh -huh. okay. now we're good friends, you know. Is there a difference between what you were writing about, because I know a lot of this is about your writing, and you mentioned uh -huh. that you were putting Chomsky stuff on there mm -hmm. and these political things. Can you explain, did you have a desire to do music that was political in some way, or what were these things, what, what was going on, and has it how has it changed to, I mean, let's just get up as far as Dan, Dan's right, right. departure, how about that, because right. when we get from there to the modern, well, to where we're at now, a little bit later. Sure. Um, yeah, I've always had a desire to make music that was, uh, see, I don't really write about politics, uh, I like to write about the absurdity of life, you know, and uh -huh. I, I've written some pretty dark songs too, like some with a lot of reality in them, I guess. But they're always pretty cheeky, you know. I uh -huh. really like comedy. Um, I always want the records to be funny, even if they're dealing with heavier material, uh -huh. I guess. But am I am I answering the right question right now? Sure. I mean, if you feel like it is, you know, go, um, go ahead. I mean, if if not, we can get back. But really, I'm just trying to say, uh, you you know. You, like you said, you're going for cheeky or for funny or yeah. something, but I mean, I'm just, it's interesting, you know, okay, so now you're putting up, you know, these things, whatever the, the kinds of samples that you were putting right, up, right, which, right. Were by, which were by people that are commenting on politics, right. even well, if you weren't, so. What those were, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, actually it was very political, uh, the, that period of the band, it was like uh, Chomsky, but then it would, there would be Richard Pryor and Bill Hicks and Woody Allen stuff uh -huh. in there, and... Uh, yeah, it was all. I, we we kind of had an insult the audience vibe for a little while, you know. And I I don't I don't know what that was all about. It was just something I had to go through. Do you think they're listening? The audience? Do they know that that's what's going on? I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> for a while it became apparent. It became apparent. I, I I insulted a voice at one of my shows. That was actually my girlfriend that I was living with Woo! at the time. <laughs> I just made a comment. Uh, I thought I was being witty, you know. Mm. You gotta remember that you are an actual person and put words in people's heads and that makes them feel certain ways. And mm. You gotta be careful. So, uh, 